electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. In for Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. Glad you could be with us today. Here's what's ahead, a tale of two retailers. This time it is Target versus Walmart, what's driving the divide and which one is likely to come out on top in this big boxing match over consumer spending. We'll debate, talk about the stocks and more. And new clothes in this economy. We'll ask Goodwill's CEO and the former HUD secretary, Steve Preston, about demand for thrifting and what it's saying about the health of the consumer. Plus, waiting for the Fed to flinch, Galaxy Digital's Mike Novogratz says rate cuts could be a boon for Bitcoin. He'll tell us why and where he sees opportunities in the market. But we begin with today's action, and Dom Chu has the numbers and more. Hey, Dom. Trying to bounce back, Tyler, from some of the string of losses that we've seen, although it hasn't been dramatic, but it's still a turn. So we'll take you through the numbers right now. If you look at the Dow Industrials, we're just about flat on the session, uh, up seven points on a 34,770-some basis there for the Dow Industrials. So, again, flat on the session. The S&P is holding above the 4,400 mark right now, 4,410, up six and a half points. That's about two-tenths of one percent, one-fifth of, you know, uh, the, the, the overall kind of mark that, in terms of basis points. <laughs> if you look at the S&P, though, from a kind of trading range basis, at the highs of the session, we were up roughly 17 and down eight at the lows. So, again, nothing major in terms of movement, but we're still drifting a little bit down trend-wise from when we have seen the markets overall. We're about 4% below the highs that we've seen so far this year. And the Nasdaq Composite, the underperformer, just down marginally, five points to the downside, 13,469. Interest rates are a big part of the discussion in the market narrative right now. If you look at the 10-year Treasury note yield, it continues to move higher and has been trending higher for the better part of a few months now. The reason why this current level is important at 4.31% is you got to go all the way back to October of last year. That was the cycle high, and that was around 4.33%. So we're just a hair below the highs that we've seen in the 10-year note yield for this particular cycle. So keep an eye on that move higher in rates. It's going to play in other parts of the market as well. And then stock-wise, take a look at the big drop in CVS Health so far today, down about 9%. Amazon's up just fractionally. Basically, what we have right now is Blue Cross of California, big kind of health insurance company, is going to move away from CVS Health's pharmacy benefits management, at least for certain drugs, in favor of Amazon's pharmacy and Mark Cuban's Cost Plus startup pharmacy agency. So those particular stocks and focus on that. And then, by the way, if you take a look at the divide in these two stocks, just look at Amazon versus CVS Health. And this is just on a year to date basis. The, the wide widening gap just keeps getting wider here. So watch what's happening with Amazon versus CVS. And then Target and Walmart, a tale of two different retailers, as Tyler points out, Walmart shares now drifting lower down about 2% right now. Target keeps bouncing. Remember, Target hit a 52 week low not that long ago. But these two stocks reacting to Walmart's earnings reports. Walmart's was actually good. 
better than expected profits, better than expected revenues, lift the full year forecast. Grocery and e-commerce driving the things, Tyler. So watch Walmart and Target. A reversal, for, at least for right now, but still, Walmart is sitting right near record highs. I'll yeah, send things back those are the here. ones to compare, especially after Target's uh, numbers yesterday, which were uh, a sort of a mixed bag, I guess you would call it. Dom, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, beyond those big-name retailers, a new call on the street digging into the discounters with student loan payments set to resume this fall. Our next guest says it's time to start paying attention to the deep value names as consumers look to stretch their wallets a little bit further. Joining us now is Anthony Chikumba, Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst covering the retail space at Loop Capital. Anthony, welcome. Good to have you with us. I know you put a high value uh, on the predictive, um, the predictive value of consumer confidence measures. Those measures hit a high last month uh, from 2021. That being the case, why are you leaning towards those more value-oriented plays, the discounter plays? Are you seeing some lack of confidence in consumer confidence? Not at all. I mean, the macroeconomic indicators that we look at are clearly uh, moving in the right direction. They have been for quite some time. Having said that, we are going to have a resumption of student loan payments this fall. So you have at least 40 million um, loan borrowers who really haven't had to pay their full student loans for over three and a half years. It's going to be a real shock to the system. Um, we do surveyed over 500 of such borrowers, um, and over half of them said that they were in a worse financial situation now than they were when uh, loan payments were halted. In addition to that, over half of them said that they're going to cut back on durable goods spending to, to cope with it. So that is the thing that we are a bit concerned with, and we could see a trade down as some of these consumers look to stretch their wallets. So this looks like a, a kind of, a, you're predicting here a kind of retrenching as these individuals, how many of them are there? You said 40 million? Numbers that I've seen are, are, are over 40 million. It could be up to 44 million. It's a big number. And what is the average amount of payment that they're going to have to pay? That's going to have to it's going to mean they're not going to have that amount of money to put gas in their tank or buy um, clothing or whatever. That's right. We've seen different uh, estimates. Um, you know, I, the number I saw today was about $10 billion. Um, in our surveys, the vast majority of, of the consumers said that they had been saving um, somewhere less than $500 a month from not having to make these student loan payments. So, so there's the hypothesis. Student loan payments, among other things, will slow some of the spending that we've seen. And that leads you now to some of the choices, the equities that you like. And among them are Dollar Tree, Dollar General, National Vision and Savers Value Village. Uh, I think that's a recent IPO. Walk us through those. Sure. So, look, Dollar General and Dollar Tree, um, they are, you know, deep discount retailers. Um, you know, Dollar General and Family Dollar are essentially small supermarkets, very convenient locations, very sharp pricing. Our pricing work shows that they're largely in line with Walmart. So generally in times of economic distress, you do see consumers uh, trade down from the supermarkets, the convenience stores, the drug stores to a Dollar General, to a Family Dollar, to a Dollar Tree. Uh, National Vision is um, a value optical retailer. Um, their opening price point um, in one of their largest chain is two pairs of eyeglasses and an eye exam for $79.95. They're already starting to see a trade down happening. And then Savers Value Village is the largest for-profit uh, thrift store in the U.S. and Canada. Um, their mm -hmm. average retail is less than $5. So, you know, these are all four retailers that we 
think could benefit from, you know, a consumer who's looking to, to save a little bit of money. Are you looking, uh, you're coming close to suggesting that the economy might go into a little bit of a recession, but you're not really saying that, are you? No, I'm absolutely not. And 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 quite frankly, uh, you know, my the, the work that we've been doing, it really a recession, I think, is largely off the table. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's the, those indications that I'm getting. But 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 I think there is a difference, a middle ground between a recession and a consumer who's who's, you know, still working and maybe making more money. But but like I said, suddenly has this incremental payment and is looking for ways, you know, to save money. It's incre- interesting to hear you say that those student loan uh debtors uh, say that their financial situation is worse off today than it was uh, at the depth of the uh, of the um, uh, pandemic. Yeah, I, that was something that really surprised me. I, I, I mean, my only guess is that has a lot to do with inflation. Obviously, we've mm. had a lot of inflation. Now, inflation has receded, um, but you, you sort of have that cumulative, cumulative um, effect. But that was the one thing that, that did surprise me, particularly given that the fact that inflation, or sorry, unemployment at 3.5% is, is just a little bit below the you know 53-year uh, low, or a little above the 53-year low. All right, Anthony, thank you very much. We appreciate your time and your insights today. Anthony Chacomba, we appreciate it. And speaking of getting the best bang for your buck, Savers Value Village posted a 5.5% year-over-year jump in same-store sales in its first uh, earnings report as a public company. Shares of that second-hand shop up 9% since the June IPO. But it is not, of course, the only thrift store seeing a boom in popularity. The nonprofit brand Goodwill says it's putting out an average of 2,000 items daily across its more than 3,000 North American stores. And here with us now on National Thrift Shop Day. Who knew that is Goodwill Industries International President and CEO Steve Preston. Mr. Preston, welcome. Good to have you with us. Yeah, great. There's a day for everything. I did. There is a day for everything. And I did not know that this was National Thrift Shop Day. But thrift shops have become very, very popular. Yes, they have been. You know, I think for a number of reasons. Number number one, people want to find those treasures. You know, yep. they know when they go into, you saw the, the, the number that said 2,000 items a day. People go into our stores and they look for something special. They generally find it. They also find very good value there. Uh, and, uh, you know, especially among young shoppers, they're looking to find something that, that they can afford. Uh, and then the third thing is, is they want something that um, creates sort of a social value. And there are two ways uh, uh, that that happens at Goodwill. Most people don't realize, but we're a nonprofit organization. So every dollar you spend in a store and the value of every single donation stays in your local community. And it does two things. Number one, it supports programs, and this is our mission, to, ha- uh, to advance economic mobility for people that are unemployed or churning in low-wage jobs. And we do that in a number of ways. Uh, we provide people with sort of core work readiness skills if they may not be quite ready or have other challenges. We provide them with hard job skills. Uh, we provided over a million and a half people with digital skills over the last five or six years. And then we work with them actually to find that job and uh, actually to place them in the job. And if they have other issues in life, we may support them uh, to help them find housing or some other things. A couple of quick questions. You mentioned that obviously you're a nonprofit, but if I go in and I buy, let's say, a jacket, a sweater, a coffee maker, or some uh, utensil, I don't get a tax write-off for that, do I? You do if you donate. If, now, if I donate, not if I purchase. You're a buyer, but I if get you donate value those out. goods. So we want you to donate in the so back door and buy the So of all the stuff that is donated, <laughs> and I've been a donor to a Goodwill uh, as I've moved children from one apartment to another and they don't need the, the stuff, 
Uh, how do you curate what is donated um, and, and goes somewhere else from what you display in your stores in your re for retail sale? So uh, everything goes through an intake process, and we work very hard to make sure that item, every item goes to its sort of what I would call its highest use. So the majority of things are going to go into a store. Um, we have two online channels, Shop Goodwill and Goodwill Finds. Wow. Who knew that? Yeah. yeah, who knew it? Two of the things I'm wearing today are from, from those online channels. This is from the Goodwill yeah. collection. Everything right? I have. Everything your, I have. Your jacket my, is a Goodwill. My jacket, my your Ferragamo tie. tie. A Ferragamo tie. <laughs> Pinpoint shirt, my slacks, everything's from a Goodwill. From the and Goodwill collection. We're going to have him stand up and do a little pirouette That's right. Here that's right. I'm not good with the runway. But, right. uh, <laughs> but, uh, but in any case, uh, yeah, so we have a large network of ways to sell goods and to help them find their highest use. Now, now, sometimes we get things donated to us that aren't sellable. We might get toys that maybe are broken or a, a piece of clothing that might not be sellable. And we work often with um, uh, uh, companies that may remanufacture re those things. We often, we've got a, a partnership right now with a company that turns plastics into decking material. Um, uh, and we're also increasingly helping emerging recycling technologies in their quest to figure out how to turn um, unused clothing back into fibers that can be reused. Mm -hmm. So the majority of it, we try to get sold. That's the highest use. But if it's something that's not sellable, we try to work with people to manufacture it. And increasingly, I think recycling will come into the picture. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Uh, and one is about how thrift shopping became a thing. Mm -hmm. You know, it became a thing. Yeah. But, uh, but let, me, let me go first to this. When I take some clothing and I don't, and I put it in one of these bins yep. that are ubiquitous, where does it go? How much of it is actually goes to um, another country or to people who need the clothing? And how much of it is actually landfilled? So um, a small percentage of the, of the clothing is going to be landfilled. Uh, the majority, so where it goes is we take it into the store. Uh, we analyze every piece of clothing and we evaluate the best place for it to go. And, in, in, um, uh, and that, as I said before... What about other providers, not you? Uh, are the, there are others who do this. It's not just Goodwill. That's right. Who have bins and so forth. Yeah. Where does that stuff go? Well, it, uh, I, you know, it would depend on the provider. In some cases, it's going to go to another thrift store chain. In some cases, people do sell it uh, into the wholesale market, which then can go all around but the world. But you then, if it's your bin, I go and I donate there, and I, uh, I may or it's, may not claim yeah. a tax deduction for that. You go through every single piece of clothing, and you look for where is the highest use value. We, go, we, we, we go through every single item at Goodwill that is donated to Goodwill. Right, and then we actually we determine you know much of most of it's going to go into the store. We have outlets, we have online channels, and some of it will go into the wholesale market. How did how did thrift shopping become a thing? There was a song. I think it was Macklemore. <laughs> I, I forget who did it. Uh, uh, how did it become a thing? Well, I'll tell you. You know, I, I don't have. Uh, I, I I can't tell you the exact history, but I know that we've been we've been a thrift store chain um, for over a hundred years. Our founder. Uh, was uh, had a mission to serve poor people in Boston, and he started collecting clothes from people to to give to the poor, and he said, you know what? If we can clean these clothes and we can mend them and resell them, we can give those people jobs. We don't need to give them a handout. We can give them a hand up, and that's what spawned uh, this massive network known as Goodwill, and that was the foundation uh, of our mission, where we said we want to help people realize their full potential through work. And that, that turned into job training programs and all sorts of other things that help people be competitive in the job market.
All right, Steve, that is a good-looking outfit yeah. from Goodwill. Appreciate Thank you very it. much. Thank you very much for telling <laughs> us the story. Appreciate it very Enjoyed much. Enjoyed having you here. All right. All righty. Mortgage rates moving higher again. Diana Olick has the uh, somewhat disturbing details. Hi, Di. Somewhat. Yeah. Hey, Ty. The average rate on the 30-year fixed mortgage just matched a 23-year high, hitting 7.37%. That, according to Mortgage News Daily. You've probably seen bond yields today and mortgage rates followed loosely the yield on the 10-year Treasury. That shot up this morning as investors digested the release of the Fed minutes yesterday, which suggested inflation was not cooling off enough. Now, for some context here, the 30-year fixed briefly touched this high on October 10th of last year, but just for one day. Before that, it was back in 2000 that we saw that level. One year ago, the rate was at 5.5%. So what a difference a year makes. If you are buying a $400,000 home today with 20% down on a 30-year fix, your monthly payment of just principal and interest is now almost $400 more than it would have been one year ago. Add to that, home prices are rising again, and you see how affordability, Tyler, is getting crushed. You mentioned yesterday uh, adjustable rate mortgages. What can you tell us about how many more of those or the percentage of those that are, uh, that are in the market today compared with three years ago, for example? Well, three years ago, there were next to no adjustable yeah. rate mortgages because why would you get one when you were getting 2.75 or 3% on a 30-year fixed? Adjustable rate mortgages offer lower rates. So we're seeing the share, I believe it was up around 7.5%, the share of loans that are adjustable rate mortgage applications is rising steadily because people are looking for any way to reduce that rate, even if it means going into a somewhat riskier adjustable rate loan. All right, Diana, thanks. Diana Ole. Coming up, is Google search too big for Bing? New data suggests that Microsoft's having a hard time gaining on Google's search dominance. We will ask Gene Munster about that next. Plus, an exclusive interview with Galaxy Digital's Mike Novogratz. We'll get his latest read on the markets in crypto and whether he still thinks stocks are in an AI bubble. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets. The Dow erasing a 122-point gain. Now down ever so slightly by about 30 points. The exchange is back after this. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. The Dow ever so slightly negative right now. Microsoft, of course, uh, was a front runner in the AI boom, probably still is. But despite the head start, the tech giant is struggling to gain on its key rival in search, Google. Here to discuss is Gene Munster, Deepwater Managing Partner. Gene, let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, I, I, I joined the rush to Bing there 
But I have to say that I haven't used Bing nearly as much as I've been using Google because old habits die hard, I suppose. Yes, Tyler, there are numbers around those old habits, and I think the Wall Street Journal appropriately outlines that uh, Microsoft is not closing the gap. I just want to quickly fill in the blanks here. Essentially, uh, Microsoft's their search share is just fractionally increased since the beginning of the year. We saw that in the June numbers. Their search business grew 3% year over year. That was unchanged from the growth in the March quarter. Google search, on the other hand, grew at 5% in June, up from 2% growth in March. So we've seen this quickening pace, which ultimately uh, presents what I would describe as three pressure points related to how Microsoft is going to play out here. And to frame this in, I think the first piece is, is that the use case between chat and search is still, uh, the, the differences between the use case are still uh, wide enough that people are still going to Google uh, for search. Second is that uh, ultimately, uh, Google has a massive distribution advantage, 20 to one by my estimates. And that's when you talk about the behavior, that's the behavior piece that's really hard to break. It's essentially entrenched. It's through Chrome, which is the most popular browser, and separately through Android, which uh, has 80% share of essentially the smartphone global market. And then the third piece related to Microsoft closing the gap is Google's not done here. Later this year, they're going to come out with Gemini, which is a new model that will compete with GPT. And I suspect that that's going to create more attention from users. And so I think when you put all this together at Deepwater, our view is that Google is going to be one of the clear winners in AI. And I think that that's becoming more clear in the near term related to search. So you use an interesting phrase there, and I'd like to hear you elaborate on it a little bit, Gene. And that is the difference between search and chat. Who uses what for what? So search is uh, what we've been doing for 20 years. And uh, the three, the primary use of search is information. That's about 50% of the queries. About 30% are used for commerce and 20% for navigation. So that's search. Chat is this generative experience it's, that has kind of caught, captured all of our attention. Sometimes chat has, uh, has search-like features. I'll give you an example. Today, I was using, uh, I was using uh, Bing uh, through their Edge browser and asked how to clean tile. And uh, it gave me a response on how to clean tile. And it also gave, surprisingly, it gave links, about 15 different links to purchase tile cleaning products. That's an example of chat trying to get into uh, the commerce piece. Commerce, right. But Tyler, that's, that's, the, that's the difference between uh, chat and search. And right now, people's behavior really is looking at it as two totally different things. Well, let no one say that Gene Munster doesn't mind getting his hands dirty, all right? That's true. I do like that. We know what you did today. So, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I'm thinking that if I want to find out the phone number or the menu of my local Chinese restaurant, I'm going to search for that, right? I don't need chat for that. I just, I, I put in T.S. Ma, Montclair, New Jersey, and I get it. Uh, uh, I, I get the information. Uh, chat I would use for a totally different purpose. That's right. And uh, the, the kind of the way this plays out longer term is, of course, this belief that ultimately we're going to just go to one uh, source. We're going to go to one uh, piece of information. You, you said something important at the beginning. You said when I search for something, search and Google are, are, are basically interchangeable, that yeah. concept. And so 
I think at the end of the day, um, the, the lines are that Microsoft wants to convert chat experience into search type of revenue. And they're trying to do that with some of the advertising they've just recently started. And separately, Google realizes that this is a, a potential risk. And so they're adding more chat-like features that are embedded in their basic search. And I'll get to write the punchline. I talked about three pressure points. There's really one pressure point to this whole story. Can Google ultimately, with their new search uh, paradigm that they're coming out with Gemini, integrating that with Google Search, can that ultimately create uh, an experience where you just go to Google and uh, sometimes you're looking for help uh, crafting an email and sometimes you're looking for uh, help uh, trying to purchase something. So that's the attention game, but the advantage is clearly in Google's favor. And I think that's what we're seeing from this journal story today. So, so I find it fa So tie it all together for me. Are you set? What is the implication of this hypothesis that you've just laid out brilliantly for the two stocks, especially for Microsoft? I think Microsoft's play, I don't think that they're going to make progress in search. I think that they're going to have uh, do a great job of integrating generative AI into Office. And I think that they'll charge $30 a month more for that. And they're going to have a, 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 good, a great business around that. When it comes to Google, I think we're going to have another uh, shift like we saw in 2010 when we moved from desktop to mobile. I remember at the time I was an analyst and there was a lot of concern about what that was going to do to some of the cost per click and the amount of activity. And ultimately, the price per click went down, but the amount of clicks went up exponentially when you put a computer in your pocket. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see the same thing once Google integrates more uh, generative AI. We're just going to go to Google a lot more and Google is going to find ways to make money. So when I put this together, I mean, Deepwater is invested in and Google, we're not invested in Microsoft, and I think that, that says it all. And you know what else says it all? That you spent the morning cleaning grout. I, I love you, I man. I love it. I do love getting my hands dirty. I, 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 great. Gene Munster, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, coming up, the industrial sector breaking below its 50-day moving average. But there's still some opportunity in the group. If you're looking for some steady income, we'll reveal the dividend darlings of the group next. The exchange is back right after this. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Welcome back to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu with this month's Sectornomics, focusing on the industrial sector, which has been an underperformer versus the S&P 500 so far this year. As you can see here, the white line, the S&P, and the orange line, the industrial sector spider, ticker XLI. Now, within that sector, there are some heftier dividend payers than the rest. If you look at those stocks within the sector, there are 75 S&P 500 industrial stocks. So we ran a screen looking for which of those stocks have had positive price performance and are yielding at least one and a half percent. So again, 75 stocks becomes 54 stocks when you put the price screener on it. And then a dividend yield screener gets you down to 21 names overall. Among those top dividend plays with positive price performance, check out some of these ones because they are the heftier dividend payers that still have not gone down so far this year. Stanley Black & Decker, 3.5%. Paychex, nearly 3%. C.H. Robinson, 2.5%. Same for Fastenal and Snap-on as well. Those five 
are five of your top dividend payers that are still positive so far this year. Now, if you're curious what the other 16 are, I couldn't put them all on the screen here, but just go over to my Twitter slash X or threads at the domino. All 21 stocks are there. Tyler, for your perusal, I'll send things back over Once to you. Once a month for sectornomics is not enough, Dom. Let, let's, get, let's up the frequency here. Uh, I will, you, you're, the, you're, the, you're the boss here. You're, a, you're, a, you're I, one of the executives I, here, so you tell them, and I'll I'm just tell you. I'm, I'm going to tell them, let's get more sectornomics. You got it. Dom, thank you. <laughs> you got it. Pippa Stevens, she wants more sectornomics. She's here now with the CNBC News Update. Always more sectornomics. <laughs> well, um, a judge declared a mistrial in the case of a white father and son in Mississippi who allegedly chased and shot at a black FedEx driver. The defense asked for a mistrial because police failed to turn over all the evidence to the prosecutor's office. Brandon and Gregory Case were charged with attempted first-degree murder, conspiracy, and shooting into the vehicle of the driver, DeMontero Gibson, in January 2022. New York City banned TikTok on government-owned devices. The app has drawn bipartisan scrutiny across the country, and Congress voted to ban TikTok on federal devices last year. An NYC City Hall spokesperson told WNBC that the ban was a result of the city's Cyber Command's conclusion that the app posed a security threat to the city's technical networks. And the family that inspired the movie The Blind Side is ending their conservatorship for former NFL star Michael Orr. The lawyer for the Tuies announced their plan at a press conference Wednesday. Orr filed a petition this week alleging the Tuies tricked him into the legal agreement and is seeking back pay for any money the couple made through the conservatorship, including movie profits. Tyler, back to you. All right, very much. Fascinating story there. Pippa Stevens, thank you. All right, coming up, inflation remains front and center on Wall Street, Main Street, even out in the Hamptons, and that is where we find Morgan Brennan with a special guest. Hi, Morgan. That's right, Tyler. I am in the Hamptons where Wall Street does summer. Uh, You mentioned inflation. We're going to talk the economy, impact on markets, including cryptocurrencies, when we're joined by Mike Novogratz of Galaxy Digital on the other side of this break. Coming up, CNBC Out East. Stay with us. All right, everybody, welcome back to The Exchange. Bitcoin sliding today, lowest level in two months, on pace, seventh negative week in eight. But the crypto and many of its counterparts are having a banner year as leaders in the space look to solidify a regulatory framework and normalize crypto in business. Morgan Brennan sits down now with one of those leaders. She's out in the Hamptons with Galaxy Digital founder and CEO Michael Novogratz. Sag Harbor, I believe. Is that not right, Morgan? Uh, You are correct, Tyler. Thank you very much. Uh, And I am joined here now by Mike Novogratz. Mike, it's great to have you. Great to be here. All right, let's start with crypto. We've got a lot to get to, but first, um, everyone was on tinterhooks coming into this week with the expectation that maybe, just maybe, we get some sort of SEC decision about a spot Bitcoin ETF. We're not getting it this week, but your thoughts on when we do get it, if we do get it, and what that means for the asset class. Listen, no one really knows factually, but when they... BlackRock and, and Invesco with us put our applications back in. That starts a six-month clock. And my intuition is it's going to be the closer to the end of that six-month clock, which is probably three to four months from now. Uh, there is a judge's decision in the case that Grayscale has against the SEC on their ETF application. And people thought that might break this week. And if the judge rules in Grayscale's favor, the thought process is that there's going to be an acceleration from the SEC to approve the BlackRock and Invesco and other 
ETFs. And so that's where the excitement came from. Um, we haven't gotten it. Rates are creeping higher, pressure on assets, and you know, you're seeing stop losses. Yeah, and we are seeing Bitcoin specifically under pressure today. Is that a direct correlation to the fact that you have Treasury, yield, Treasury yields, the 10-year testing uh, October highs? 100%. Listen, we, we've come a long way this year in, in crypto and in Bitcoin. Uh, we had a lot of good things happen. A lot of good things get priced into the market. And one of the assumptions that risk assets keep making is that the Fed is going to finish hiking rates and then start cutting. And all of a sudden, with Japan hiking rates, their back end starts falling off. Our back end starts getting hit. And it's feeling like you're getting a, a wash out of this bond market bubble. Uh, maybe it's the start, maybe it's not. But that's got markets really scared. And I think you're going to see risk assets under pressure until you get some basing or bottoming of, uh, of the bond market. You just used the B word for the bond market. I guess just dig into that a little bit more for me. Well, listen, we've had debt to GDP in our country go from 45 or 50% when I graduated from college to 130%, right? <laughs> right? The baby boomers have mortgaged our grandchildren's future. And it all felt normalized because it didn't cost us anything, right? We had this low 10-year rate, low 30-year rate, and so borrow, borrow, borrow. Right. Donald Trump came in and ran giant budget deficits before COVID. Right. He increased government spending more than any president in history before COVID. Then COVID came and out came the fire hoses. And Joe Biden came in. He said, well, it's my turn. Build back better. You know, the, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. Huge increases in spending. And so one of the reasons the economy's done so well is because we've given everyone tons of free money. But at one point, you know, money doesn't grow on trees. I remember my mother telling me that when I was eight. Uh, and maybe deficits become important, right? Yeah. Sometimes they're not. Like markets go years without them caring. But right now it feels like there's no buyer of long-end treasuries. There's no buyer of, of 10 years, of 30 years here in the UK and, and all of a sudden in Japan. Yeah, and of course this has been some of the, I, I think, the case or, or the argument that's made by Bitcoin bulls, for example, especially in a high inflation environment, I mean, we can make the argument that inflation is starting to come off a little bit. Do we see do we see a run up in some of these asset prices for, for cryptocurrencies through the rest of the year or with institutional money coming in? Does, does trading look different? You know, listen, Bitcoin has two vectors that drive price. One is adoption, like the more and more people that understand it, that like it. The ETF is the single biggest thing that will help adoption, right? Larry Fink coming out and saying, I believe in Bitcoin, which he has, right? And the largest asset manager in the world trying to get engaged. Invesco, our, our partner, getting engaged. There's a lot of salesmen in those places. So that's going to drive price. The other is Fed policy, right? Bitcoin went from 6000 to 69000 because the Fed started taking a fire hose and giving everyone money. Like, it was supposed to go up. It was also supposed to come down when Chairman Powell took out his magic hammer and started bashing inflation on the head, right? He has been very hawkish. And so it's this inflection when they go from hawkish to dovish at, a sa at the same time when the government's not acting responsible in spending. We spend too much money as a government, right? We're at 24% spending, 24% mm -hmm. uh, of GDP spending. That number traditionally has been 20 Okay. Um, I do have to ask you, because we are out here in the Hamptons, you are a macro guy. Um, microcosm for the economy, and if so, what's it telling us? Listen, at least the rich, the rich part of the economy is still 
got plenty of money. You can't get into a restaurant. The traffic jams are horrible. Uh, it almost feels like there's not enough infrastructure for the amount of people. Uh, all year long, people have been waiting for the economy to slow down, and it's the service side of the economy that hasn't. Right? Services make up 85% of our economy, and they're strong. And you basically feel that out here. Now, I know it's not a complete microcosm of the world because it's mostly the well-to-do. Um, but man, oh man, it's the same as trying to get a hotel reservation or a restaurant in New York City. You know, the, the economy on the service side is still popping. Yeah, and of course, in a week where retail earnings, for example, and retail sales are very much in focus, everybody's trying to get a read on the consumer, which does seem to continue to stand up under under the face of inflation and higher rates. He will die at one point, right? The consumer like does like the student loan stuff, higher rates, you run out of that excess savings. Yeah. And so at one point, like, Fed policy does work. It's just taken a lot longer than we thought. All right, Mike Novogratz, great to get your thoughts today. Thanks, Thanks for joining me. Thank you. Galaxy Digital. And Tyler, we have an action-packed lineup this afternoon, including on CNBC Overtime, which kicks off at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can see some of the guests we'll be bringing you through the next couple of hours, including Wes Edens, co-founder of Fortress Investment Group, uh, and uh, also CEO of New Fortress Energy. You've got Jared Isaacman from Shift4, a number of other names. Next hour, Harvey Spivak from Equinox and Bonnie Brennan, uh, Christie's President of Americas, where we're going to talk a little bit more about the state of the consumer. We'll Fantastic, see you Morgan. Thank you very much. We'll be looking forward to that and looking forward to uh, overtime. Up next, TV tumbling. Nielsen reporting linear TV dropping to less than half of all viewing in July. On the other end of the business, streaming is reaping the benefits of that growth and raising prices. We got more on that when we return on The Exchange. The NBC-owned streaming service Peacock today joining a number of growing platforms, growing number of platforms, I should say, that are getting more expensive. The cheaper version of Peacock going up by a dollar and the ad-free version rising $2. Julia Borston is here to discuss. Hi, Julia. Well, Tyler, Peacock's price increase, and of course, we have to say Peacock is owned by the same company as CNBC, our shared parent company is Comcast. Now, that price increase follows Disney announcing $3 price hikes for this fall of its ad-free Hulu and ad-free Disney Plus services. This all comes as the streamers look to push consumers to the dual revenue stream of their ad-supported versions and as the whole media industry faces pressure to grow streaming profits as the linear TV business shrinks. Now, Nielsen reporting just this week that linear TV dropped to less than half of all viewing in July for the first time ever. Now, to compensate for those losses, the media giants are raising prices of their direct-to-consumer streaming services, which I'm calling streamflation. This fall, the top six streaming subscriptions, uh, the bundle of uh, top streaming subscriptions will cost over $87 a month. That's up from $73 in this comparable for the comparable apps a year ago. Now, the risk now is that those higher prices could drive churn, especially if consumers are disappointed by just how little new content is added this fall as a result of this strike. So that strike could also deal an even bigger blow to the broadcast networks, which do not have the library of content to feature that the streamers have to fall back on. Now, the latest sign of media giants struggling to monetize their media assets, Paramount has decided not to sell BET. That's according to sources close to the situation. Now, they do tell me that Paramount received bids from about 
$2 billion to about $3 billion, but that Paramount would have had to sell for well over $3 billion to meet the threshold of this sale having a meaningful impact on deleveraging. Now, the, the company had a no comment, but sources tell me that the company is focused on the value of its linear and streaming platform and how efficiencies of scale with BET may fall into that. So trying to make the most of what they have since they couldn't sell it for as much as they would have liked. You know, it's Guys. kind of funny. We talk about linear TV versus the streaming TV, but, but linear TV, for the most part, remains a subscription product, doesn't it? Because most people get lin quote, linear TV through a cable subscription. Yes, it's all about the bundle. So that's the TV bundle. And now you can either subscribe to a traditional TV bundle and you can even get it through, say, Hulu with live TV or Google. YouTube has a live TV option as well. You could subscribe to a bundle or you could subscribe to these services a la carte. And what's so interesting is now with streamflation, as each of these individual services has gotten more expensive, if you are going to bundle them together yourself, you may actually end up paying more than you would if you paid for old fashioned well, cable. Yeah, that's that's kind of it. I mean, you get hooked on that. And we we're talking about these six particular bun, uh, not bundles, uh, but the, the streamers. And I assume it's Netflix, Hulu, Peacock, ESPN Plus, maybe a couple of more. When when I sign up for those, do I still get CNBC? Do I still get CNN? Do I still get Fox? Do I still get uh, the ABC network? Well, this is a longer conversation, Tyler, and we, we could devote a lot more time to this. But I think ultimately you don't have the same bundle of linear TV channels that you just flip through if you're watching cable at home. Yes, Peacock and yes, some of these other services okay. do have live TV channels such as CNBC. And CNBC is, in, is included in many of these skinnier bundles, but you're cobbling it together rather than getting a guarantee of getting all the different channels. All right. Julia, thank you very much. Sometime uh, over dinner, we'll talk it through. Thank you very much. Julia Borston. Still to come, we'll get you ready for Jackson Hole next week. It's going to be big. Big. Big week of Fed talk ahead. What are investors uh, watching out for out in Jackson Hole? Here to discuss is our own Steve Leisman, Steve Auth, CIO of Federated Hermes and one of the biggest bulls on the street, and Mike Vogelzang, Chief Investment Officer at Cap Trust. Let me begin with you, Mr. Auth. I'm going to call you Steve. We had this yesterday, didn't we? Yeah. We had two Steves on at the same time. But Steve Auth, welcome. Good day. You are bullish. You say don't worry about the student loan uh, repayment issue. It's not that big to begin with and consumer finances and debt loads are pretty good. Yeah, I mean, the, the consumer debt service, the excellent service is like 0.2% of GDP, Tyler. I always say time is on the side of the bulls. In the time that we've been worrying about this, job growth has been 1.6 million people, wages have gone up, COLA adjustments on Social Security, if you add all that up, there's been a 3.2% increase in consumer income in the last 12 months against a 0.2% hit. So it's not insignificant, but there's other positive things happening. So um, oh, go finish yeah. your thought. I'm sorry. No, the debt service is the same way. I mean, it, it, you know, the, debt, the, the amount of debt is up, but because most consumers' debt is long-term fixed rate, a lot of them refinance at a very debt. low rate. Mortgage That's debt. Mortgage About debt. 70 to 80% of the total amount of debt. So actually, debt service today is running at about 9.6%. It was 9.8% of income in 2019. It was 13.7% at the peak in 2007. So when people get all worried and think we're near something like that, 
it's it's way lower. It's much more manageable. Steve uh, Leesman, you want to react there? I mean, I think that makes sense. I, you know, going back as long as you and I have both been doing this, follow the money, right? And and if you look at what's happened, uh, the, the fact that more people are employed, they're making more money, and now inflation is coming down, has increased real earnings. Um, I think you have some of the ingredients to keep the expansion going. Um, I think there are drags and there are challenges along the way. The student loan thing should not be dismissed. It is a challenge. It could hurt certain retailers in certain places, but not overall the macro economy. You do have savings dwindling down from what they had stockpiled from the pandemic. Um, but people were not used to living and spending with that much in the bank. Now that it's it's gone. It would be a problem if we had still high rising prices. But since inflation seems to be going in the right direction, there's less of a need for that excess savings to maintain current existing levels of. of Mike Vogelzang, Steve Auth is pretty bullish. You point out uh, the rise in the 10 year yield uh, on 10 year Treasury. It is what, 4.3 percent today, something like that. Uh, and that is pulling other kinds of rates higher as well. Uh, what do you think? Are you as bullish, for example, as Steve, or are you a little more cautious? Well, I'll tell you what, it's really, really murky in the macro environment. That's the way we view it, that you can almost create whatever narrative you want, given the various uh, dynamics that are going on. You've got a, you've got a, a very expensive stock market. 10 years back to its post-COVID highs, uh, up 100 basis points in a few months. You have, um, you know, Fed funds are pricing in cuts in the first quarter of 21. At the same time, the Atlanta Fed now number is pushing 6% on, on current GDP. Like uh, most strategists on Wall Street are calling for, for a recession, either the fourth quarter of this year or next year. It's a very murky environment. What what we're focused on, of course, is trying to, is trying to find reasonable ideas for investment. And um, you know, there's lots of talk been uh, given this year about the, the large cash flow generators in the mega cap growth technology mm -hmm. names, right? All mm -hmm. the, the magnificent seven or however you want to label them. Um, what we think and what's interesting is that we find the same dynamic occurring in small cap stocks that we see in large. That is, the, the best cash flow stocks in the small cap world are actually performing pretty well, uh, exceptionally well. They've outperformed the Russell 2000 by about 10 percent or so this year. So you're seeing that you're seeing. Our premise here is that investors are going where they're treated well, as they often do. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, instead of staples and utilities in a turbulent, volatile time, you're actually right. seeing investors find and chase the cash flow. As Steve Leisman just said, follow the money. Cash flow investor investing is profitable. It's working well. And it continues to work. Right. And I think it's been an undertold story. All right, we have to uh, wrap it up here. But, Steve, you're heading out to Jackson Hole, I am sure, next week, mostly for the Fed meeting, but also maybe a little fishing, right? It what could you, happen. What, you, what are you expecting next week? Well, I mean, they're going to talk Just about whichever, structural shifts in the global economy. Um, I can announce right now that our first interview will be uh, 10 a.m. on Thursday morning with Philly Fed President Patrick Harker. And, and what I want to know is what, what's, what's the story with policy? With growth high, inflation coming down, unemployment still tight, how does that affect policy? Gentlemen, thank you very much. Steve, Stephen, Auth, thank you very much. And you, Mike, Tyler. we appreciate your time today. And that, folks, does it for this edition of The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yeah! 
or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.